Bill Dutcher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, been looking forward to this conversation. We have never worked together, but uh, we do haunt uh, some of the same uh, venues in this town. I've heard, I probably heard of you well before I actually met you. Okay. Um, I do remember there was a venue in North Scottsdale called Rare Earth. Do you remember? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Uh, uh, Karana, I think there was a pronunciation of her last name, and she had the pizza place that was up yeah. there at Alma School and uh, Dynamite, top of the hill. Top of the hill. Yeah, yeah. I remember it because I used to, I was on the schedule, and I remember seeing your name on the schedule, and uh, everyone spoke very highly of you. So I want to um, go back. I did a little bit of, of Facebook uh, research on you. I yeah. didn't find... A, a ton of information about Bill okay. Dutcher. Okay. <laughs> now, what I think I, I do know is that you grew up in Ohio. Yeah, born and raised uh, a suburb of uh, Northwest Columbus called Dublin, Ohio. Okay. And uh, uh, family's all from that area and moved out here to Phoenix probably 17, 18 years ago. Okay, similar yeah. to me. I was wondering when you when you made it out here. Yeah, that would probably be. I can remember is Christmas week of '04. Yeah, so uh, I came out with uh, both of our boys at the time, and they were you know younger at that time, probably four and six. And uh, my wife drove one of the cars out with her father. Uh, my father-in-law, so she didn't like to fly. I got out easy on that one, man. I got, I, I was a four hour trip with me with the kids and it was a three day trip for her via car. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, take me back. Um, if you would take me back to kind of the early years, uh, and the music that, um, you know, maybe as a kid you were being exposed to, I'd love to know about, you know, is there music in your family? Uh, I'd love to know about um, some of the records, the early records that inspired you, or maybe some bands that inspired you early on. Um, so if we can start there, that'd be Wow. Happy. Okay. A deep, a broad brushstroke, but man, but to start, to start in the beginning, I would probably have to say a vivid memory that stands out is I can remember my folks had a party when I was probably 10 years old and had friends over and a guy showed up with a nylon string folk guitar and sat down and I, I just watched him and was mesmerized. And the next day I went to my mom and I said, mom, I'm on that guy that was playing guitar. I want to do that. I'd like to try one of those. And she said, okay, well, we supposedly she had a couple friends that were, you know, knew about music and they, and suggested, oh, no, 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 start them on accordion first. Everyone starts their child on accordion. <laughs> yeah, man. So that's my, my guilty pleasure. Um, <laughs> so I had a turquoise and white mother of pearl accordion. And mom said, you play me one so you can learn one song on that accordion and we'll, we'll get a guitar. So what I do you was, think the impetus was for that? Like I said, at that time, you know, I, I think my mom, my mom, definitely brought the musical influence to my life and and what i what i i would say have the passion for and doing and, and have just come to grow in love with music and that i can remember riding with her in the car harmonizing you know singing her teaching me harmonies and uh the the album in particular james taylor mudslide slim man oh come on that album is just a formative album for me that that that, that hits so many nerves for me yeah and uh uh carol king at the time um, sure and guilty pleasure kenny rankin you know uh -huh. uh, uh i really enjoy his stuff and what he brings in with his type of guitar playing with the bossa nova and the latin stuff but the, his interpretations of songs that that's what my mom kind of spun at home and beatles and stuff like that but a lot of james taylor growing up in my house you know mm. uh, mm -hmm. and and from that you know she teach me the harmony part you take that part i take the, and she'd sing and no kidding yeah yeah man that's kind of how the i'd say the the interaction with another human on a musical uh context happened i mean there's one thing to sit there by yourself and learning music i think and having the passion for 
you know, uh, the academic study of it, but the, the, the human interaction of it, that was my first taste of it. So, and was your mom a trained singer? Like, how was she coming at this? She came from that from my grandmother. My grandmother was in music back and actually had a short stint, did some work with the Andrews sisters and sang. Yeah. So I was big into that kind of show, show music back then. But, um, my grandmother definitely brought that to my mother, but, uh, you know, mom just always had a love for music and still does to this day, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like she she raised you on the right on the right bits, right? I mean, only yes, only with that accordion thing. If we had a time machine and we could go back and fix that one, no. <laughs> but I did learn the song on the accordion, and which then, was uh, it was oats and beans or something like that, or some three four time German waltz going um ba ba um ba ba, you know, just you know, learning something like that, but. After that, I remember we had a friend of the family that was a classical guitar teacher, and uh, he, Paul Hartley, he was my first guitar teacher in Columbus, Ohio, at Chuck Daly's Guitar Center, and I keep in touch with Paul to this day. But That's awesome. Paul, uh, Paul started uh, on a nylon string, and I was doing classical stuff as a 10, 11 year old kid because at that age you're pretty impressionable. You're, you know, you're going to do what your guitar teacher tells you. Right. And, you know, a lot of this Bach, Beethoven, Mozart stuff and fingerstyle arrangements of bread tunes, you know, If by Bread was one of the first tunes I learned. Classical Gas by Mason Williams, you know, okay. you know he, he threw me right under the bus with that fingerstyle stuff. Okay. And while I don't profess to be a classical player, uh, that was a great foundation to build technique from, from which I was able to develop into a, a, a direction of my own. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, let's not let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah. All right. So, ten eleven, playing the nylon string. You bag the accordion. Um, you get the guitar. I'm assuming. I get the guitar. Ten, you know, like I said, uh, right around that ten eleven year age, jumping and what, in with Paul. What grade is that? Sorry, I'm well, terrible. I'm at sure. What would that was six? What would you say that? Uh, yeah okay yes, so somewhere yeah. uh, grade, grade school whatever. grade school yeah yeah fourth yeah. you know fifth sixth grade i think and did you do kind of did you start like in a band program uh there in columbus or this was one-on-one lessons every saturday at like 12 30 in, in saturday afternoon i you know, yeah. I, I just pining couldn't wait to go and 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 learn the next part of the song because you know back then we didn't have the Xerox and copy machines, man. He was writing this stuff out, man. notating it for yeah. me, giving me four measures, say, you know, learn this, see you next week, you know? And wow. he was, yeah, I mean, he just had a, na- a, a Nick, uh, a, a, a knack for being this Pied Piper. You know, he just kept me going and on the hook, man. I just voraciously devoured it. And I just took off from there. I, you know, I slept with my guitar right next to the bed at night and I was just, started to emulate and uh, listen to a lot of different stuff. And, and probably around that teenage, you know, 13, 14, when you start making those choices and what you like to do, stylings and stuff like that, music. And I, I kind of went a little bit, you know, awry uh, from that school and kind of parted ways with Paul because the stuff I was learning, I was saying, teach me these Black Sabbath tunes and these Jimi Hendrix tunes and Zeppelin tunes. And He's like, you don't want to do that, man. Let's stick with what, you know, this finger style stuff. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And okay. So, so early kind of non-classical influences, Hendrix and Zeppelin. And I mean, all those classic, you know, definitely, you know, early seventies guitar guys. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a great, I feel great time in that seventies as a teenager being exposed to just the wonderful amount of guitar-driven music that was of the Mm. time. And that perpetuated through the teens, I think, where the 80s, I kind of think, started to see this gladiator almost status of the ability of guitarists. You had a lot of technical rock starting to come into play. Malmsteen, Vi, Satriani, the instrumental rock. Right. I I dove right into that, man. Mm-hmm. I just I really got into that type of stuff. It's what resonated with me. Do you think it's because you had kind of a tech like you you started the instrument on a technical level, right? I mean, obviously you 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 had an emotional connection with the guitar, but you also had that foundation, that really technical, classical finger style. 
um, upbringing. So did that, I guess I would kind of assume that that would prime you for those players. Uh, yes, because in a way, through muscle memory and associating muscle memory with pitch recognition in the head, mm. as I was hearing that music, I was going, oh, it's this. You know, I just kind of was able through osmosis, I think, to kind of get it at first pass when I heard this stuff. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, when I listen to music, I just kind of, I just see where the hands are on the neck. You know, it's weird. Mm -hmm. That's when I, oh, interesting. when I listen to stuff, it is. I mean, I'm, I, I, yes, I'm listening for chords and stuff like that. And, and from a theory standpoint and chord progressions, but I can just see where that note is on the fretboard. It's just comes through, I think, repetition of just, doing it for 40 plus years you know that's yeah. awesome that's that's crazy yeah. um, and there's a whole school on a school in that lunar learning i have a friend of mine base base great bass player that his his wife's a music teacher and it's, it's called the kotali method or uh, it's a method of color and shape on how to teach music oh it's cool. a really amazing technique yeah yeah very cool um so did you do kind of like the the high school band thing or or were you kind of beyond that yeah i was the kid that snuck his electric guitar into school every day and hit it in the locker man and like <laughs> searched out the other kids on lunch break let's go sneak around over here and you know jam a little bit and got in trouble all the time for it man nah i was just a geek with guitar and i took them apart i you know i just wanted to know how they worked and mm. you know seventh grade first band with guys and you know just getting together at one of the uh, the drummer's house and sure. uh what was the name our of that band i don't even think we had a name at the time man we just kind of wanted to get together and make noise you know mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. uh uh but that's kind of where it started i think seventh grade you know for me and i just did not stop you know mm-hmm yeah. So all through high school, uh, bands and, and, um, interestingly enough, not in high school. Uh, it be, it was more of, uh, my own, my own plane, my own enjoyment. It really wasn't until college that, uh, things started to come together in a band direction. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to a small liberal arts college in Southern Ohio called Ohio university. And, um, I went to, I went to OSU for one quarter, then transferred down to OU. But, uh, from there I met guys that I still have a band with today, 30 plus years, three albums of original material wow. called the crunch and, uh, various lineup changes over the years. I'm the, I'm the founding formative member, but we've circled back to the original lineup. Now the original wow. singer, original bass player and the original drummer. Damn. Yeah. And so, um, we go back and visit family in the summer and we always do a reunion gig and it turns into more of a college reunion than it does a band gig because it's the music was the common denominator that kept those circle of people together. Mm -hmm. And that's just, again, attributing the power of music and, you know, and how it just keeps perpetuating. It's great. Um, so did you, did you study music at, at in college or not formally, I would say on a, on a, on a, uh, on a, uh, degree level. Mm -hmm. Um, I did take some basic, you know, courses to just, just kind of continue out of curiosity and education, but for the most part, self-taught, um, you know, any of the formative training was with Paul, but, uh, from there it was just on my own. I've always just been, you know, that What's, way. So what did, what did you study in college? I was a radio and television, uh, communications, uh, major. I did, uh, I was a director. I did live news and football and basketball games and also did audio minor in film and um it's a great experience you know did a lot of audio recording and video recording i liked the environment uh because it was live i think that kind of correlates with live music you know mm -hmm. i like that thrill of not knowing if it was going to blow up or explode <laughs> and being having that tension on having to you know film live television and capture the camera shots very very cool i liked it well and probably skills that you're employing today right i mean audio and video uh being able to record yourself being able to video um in a compelling way as a as an independent musician uh those skills are in high demand you have to be able to uh record yourself in a way that is professional and 
use a video to promote what you're doing, right? So I, I would say that, that those are great. Those would have been great uh, skills to develop at that age because I'm sure you're using all of that now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, albeit the the process is the same. What's changed is the technology. Right. You know, I, I, I when I went to school for it, there was none of this that we we have going right here with this mm-hmm. call and the, and the webcams and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, yeah, we we were splicing videotape with a razor blade. You know, I just right. sound like the caveman there, but and we were dubbing with VHS decks. Right. VHS decks. You know, but yeah, it's, principles are the same with editing and composition and audio and all that applies. Those laws apply. It's just, uh, it's amazing now that everyone now has that kind of hat on. They are mm-hmm. a, a, a studio videographer and a audio engineer. It's, uh, it's well, amazing have, that the technology. You, you have to be though, right? I mean, the, you know, absolutely. No yeah. one else is going to be promoting your stuff. So if you don't have a handle yeah. on how to do that, you're kind of lost. Yes, it is. It is a uh, evil necessity, you know, uh, um, in this in this line of work, you know, and if doing this as a profession. Yes, you have to wear all the hats. You are the the booking agent, the roadie, the te- the guitar tech, you know, the onstage talent, everything, everything. Right. right. This episode is brought to you by the Angstrom team. This is Becky, Carrie, and Kate. It's the mother-daughter real estate team with Coldwell Banker Realty. And I know for a fact I have friends and family all around the globe that listen to this podcast. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you what's up. And maybe you're thinking, well, what can they do for me? I don't live in Arizona. It's totally fine. Even if you aren't in Phoenix, Becky, Carrie, and Kate can help you find a great agent wherever you live. Do you want to buy it? Do you want to sell it? Do you want to remodel the shed in the backyard? They can't help you with that. Okay, but they can help you with buying and selling. Reach out. 480-250-1936. It's super easy. They know what's up. They can help you. Engstromteam.com. E-N-G-S-T-R-O-M. Team. Dot com. You can spell team, right? At what point do you, uh, well, it sounds like you, you start a family. This is after college and... Yeah, after college, I um, again uh, the interesting point there. You know, at the time I graduated, uh, this is ninety. Uh, you know, there's this huge outflux of of students in this field, and everybody fighting for the same job. The band was still doing well. We were, you know, we hooked up with at that time NACA, National Association of College Activities, did sure. a Big Ten school thing, you know, and traveled all over and had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, was actually doing a lot better financially doing that than in, I could have been taking a entrance level position at, a, at the local television station, you know, right. starting right. as a cameraman and working my way up through my career type of thing. But uh, NACA, I got into, go sorry, just to, don't mean to interrupt, but, but NACA, um, is certainly, I would feel like a big thing on the East coast. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts and sure. obviously there's a high concentration of universities and colleges. And yep. I, I don't know, I don't hear much about NACA in Arizona, but for listeners, uh, NACA, as you say, is an organization. It's almost like, um, Oh God, what's the uh, APAP in New York for performing arts centers, mm-hmm. It's NACA is is a similar situation where you go and you perform for college buyers, right? Yes, um, yes, yes. And so they're you know they're trying to put tours together. And uh, when, what year roughly is this era for you? Is this eighties, nineties, nineties? Okay, Just, so yeah, and that's you know that's a heyday for um, college budgets, and they want yep. to put original music in front of their students and put tours together. So NACA was a really big thing. I remember, you know, as, as a younger person, when I was back in Massachusetts thinking, Oh man, if I could only, if we could only get in front of NACA and mm-hmm. do some showcases and get some college dates and, you know, um, there's a, there's a similarity there NACA with APAP, APAP being the performing arts center version of this. So anyway, I just wanted to, to clarify because I don't know if yes. a lot of people in Arizona know what NACA is. 
Yeah. And uh, again, that was a very fruitful time during that time and right. kind of right place, right time, because there was a lot of great work available from that. Right. Um, at, at that time, I had gotten into music retail. I came on board uh, at a guitar shop in Columbus, Ohio there that was kind of a boutique handmade acoustic store Nice. that had an in-store guitar maker, a luthier. Uh, J. Thomas Davis, who was a guitar maker, and hence we were kind of the national warranty repair center in that area for all the major lines. You know, my, uh, years of standing over that guy's shoulder and kind of learning. I was, you know, I've definitely learned a lot about that side of the business. Uh, my my boss at the time would send me out to the NAM shows, and everybody that you know knows what the National Association of Music Merchants convention is. It's, it's where all the toys are and all the all the new. You know, product lines come out, all the mm. artists are there playing. But, and yes, while that's a lot of fun, I got sent to those training seminars for eight hours a day on how to sell. So, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't having all the fun that everybody else was out there playing all the guitars and stuff. So I learned yeah. a lot about sales in music retail, of which is another facet that has helped me doing this because I'm using a lot of those same types of techniques. But instead of the product being a guitar, it's me. You know, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. that's, that's, we could have a whole other conversation on that, on the business side of things, on, you know, being the businessman and being the artist and stuff like that. But well, yeah, it's, and it's an integral tool and the integral side of this. You know? Well, and, and as you say, it's, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. You have to, you have to wear all the hats. You yes. have to know how to market and sell yourself. You obviously have to know your instrument. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a soup to nuts uh, job. Mm-hmm. In, yep. And understanding that in the absence of some sort of, I don't know, management or booking or whatever, um, in the absence of that, it's really on you, you know, get your shit together, mm -hmm. <laughs> Yep. figure everything out that you can. Yep. And, and, and then the, the, sometimes the, the toughest, the toughest bit of that equation is to execute, right? You might have all these great ideas. Sure. That's great. You have to execute them now, you know, and I feel like that's something that is kind of lost or can be lost. And that's such a crucial um, um, part of of being a, a self-sustained, independent, full-time performing musician. Um, you you if you don't wear all the hats, something is some ball is going to get dropped. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was it was it was during the retail days though that that's when I kind of took a 180 from the electric lead guitar pyrotechnic technical rock thing because the band had split uh you know and I said well here I am now I'm I'm this electric lead guitar player that was in a five piece band and and now what am I going to do? I, you know, I wish I was paying attention to the the front man singing so I could remember all the words he was singing. I'd have a catalog of tunes I could instantly go out and play. But I started from square one, not being a lead vocalist and having all this technique. I said, I'm just going to do it on acoustic and just get out there and try it. So I just started, dove in head first, man, and developed my vocal technique over the years. And I already had the chops down. It was a matter of coordinating that and putting a show together that I could be a singer songwriter type of thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time I was doing when the acoustic door opened up, I got opened up to Chet Atkins, Merle Travis, uh, Jerry Reed, Tommy Manuel, a lot of the country finger picking styles like that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I went right down that rabbit hole and learned that chord melody style country finger picking stuff. Then somebody turned me on to Michael Hedges. And that's when I went, to down this huge rabbit hole to where I am today, getting into this modern acoustic two-handed tapping alternate tuning thing. And uh, hence, here we are doing this weird acoustic thing I do, I guess. I don't know. And um, all right, so at what point, it, we're talking about in the 90s, doing NACA with the band, the band breaks up. At what point do you decide uh, to move the family to Phoenix and why? Yes, yes. Great question. Well, so... You know, 2004, uh, my wife has uh, had had an uncle out here and, and and relatives, and we'd come out to visit and, you know, prior to getting married and just fell in love with the lifestyle out here. I just really fell in love with it. And 
I had become a little disenchanted in the Midwest on where I had taken things with, uh, I had felt I kind of hit the ceiling. You know, yes, I had these NAM show contacts and industry relationships and I was doing that type of thing. I would, you know, I, it was six hours in Nashville for me. wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was doing some sideman work, some people uh, in Nashville. Um, but I felt I just kind of tapped the ceilings. So I said, you know what? I'm going to drop it all. Let's go out someplace new and just start on square one, knocking on doors. And if I get some sort of same validation from that, then I must be doing okay. Cause I'm hearing it from, you know, honest people that don't know me from Adam and have seen me for the first time, because I just felt like I was getting a lot of lip service back home. Like, you know, Oh, you're great. You're great. This is working great. You should do this. And I just, I got disenchanted. So that was a factor for it. And plus I just loved the lifestyle out here. And, um, just wanted a change, you know, and mm-hmm. that, that coming out here gave me that opportunity because uh, I've just, there's just been so many more opportunities and, and uh, doors that have opened that I could have never found back there. So now, you know, and, it, and then my wife, my wife and I always said, if it didn't work, we could always go back, you know, right. But, and right. we didn't go back. Exactly. Yeah. Well, a lot of what, a lot of that story, um, also rings true for me. Um, growing up in Massachusetts and coming out here. I, I moved out here in October of 2003 um, okay. to get away from that New England market. I just, I was I'm not, I was not touching the ceiling by any stretch, but I was super frustrated because it was really, it's really hard to make a living um, even as a solo singer songwriter, which I didn't know. I didn't even know about that at the time. It was more sure. you know, trying to play in Boston and New York and Burlington. It was definitely like a pay to play situation. You're on these, um, yeah, yeah. You're on these uh, co bills, you know, with five other bands, and and you're splitting a hundred dollars with your band. Yeah, you know, um, that's no way to make a living. And I remember moving out here and thinking, oh man, there's so much work. If I could just figure out how to be a, a solo singer songwriter. I can work uh, weddings and corporate events and resorts and wine bars. Like every, there's a wine bar in every corner, patios everywhere. Um, I just remember being blown away um, by the amount of work. So you mentioned you had to go through a little bit of a transition from being a, you know, like a lead guitar player to a solo singer songwriter. And did that move from, uh, Ohio to Arizona was that the was that the thing that 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 urged you to do that? You know what I'm saying? Or did that happen prior to that? And you came out I think prepared. It happened prior, and I came out prepared. But I've always held on to that love of playing in a band format with you know the power trio thing. I've always love you know whatever the ensemble but just that safety and numbers thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know that's the element that i miss you know obviously Mm -hmm. it's doing solo work but um that's a tough one that's a tough one i well but but it sounds like you know you kind of saw i mean not the writing on the wall but but you saw a need to be able to be self-sufficient and started to hone that craft. And by the time you get out here, there's, there is plenty of work and it doesn't take a lot of knocking on doors to get gigs, which is, you know, which is great about this, about this area is that um, there was just so much work. So to be able to plug yourself in right when you get here. And, and Mm -hmm. I guess my next question, just logistically, um, did you come out and just start playing music or was there a side gig that you did? Like, how did you weather that, that yeah, mood yeah. and that transition? I got on the internet and tried to find some other solo players. And at that time, I remember a guy named Joe Myers and Joe actually was a, had a harp guitar and played harp guitar, finger style stuff and kind of mm-hmm. did my, you know, thing, my kind of show. It's that type of presentation I do. Yeah. Fantastic player. And um, I remember when I came out here, one of the first couple of weeks going down, he was at the Rhythm Room. And, you know, and I went up, introduced myself, and we connected. Um, you know, um, so there were guys like that doing it. But I just went and hit, tried to find booking agents 
you know, obviously to start with something to get food on the table out here and get to mm-hmm. get some money coming in. I just, I hit the resorts, you know, and just took yeah. whatever I could to get going. Sure. And then I started going out and just hitting every open mic I could find, you know, and going in there and just both guns blazing, <laughs> just, you know, playing my most pirate, whatever I could, man, just to yeah. peel the pain off the place, you know, and just, <laughs> and just kind of make a buzz, make a buzz around town. I remember at that time on a suggestion of a friend in 2005, I entered that guitar center guitar mageddon contest you know now i would probably you know so whatever it, it, but i looked at it as a, a pr opportunity well i was one of eight guys that out of 3500 and i made it to the finals to play the wilshire hotel and i did it on an acoustic guitar wow i did it on acoustic all these other guys all, everyone else was electric guitar and and uh funny story short is the guy that won it a year before a guy named michael kelsey is a good uh, friend of mine from lafayette indiana he won it on the acoustic guitar and did that hmm. but he i talked to him afterwards and i go and uh man why didn't you say anything you're gonna do that and he goes well i know if you and the, a couple other people would have found out you guys would have signed up we all would have ended out up out there you know going against <laughs> one another so but he went out with an acoustic and just <laughs> shut it down man it was great so you know <clears throat> I just tried to get out and make an awareness because at that time in 04, we didn't, we don't have the degree of social media spidering out. We have now it was more of get in the car and go to the gig and play, you know, and show, you know, get out there personally. So I did a lot of beat in the streets. Definitely. Uh, Do you remember any of those uh, early open mics uh, locations? uh... (laughs) Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, the first one, man, Kokomo Joe's, Whoa. Ethan Newman. Oh, Ethan Newman. come on, Ethan Newman. Shout and out. That was the, yep. Shout out to bro, E-Dog. Uh, yeah. first guy I met when I moved to town, man. No shit. First guy I met when I moved to town. You and, are not uh, the first person to say that either. Ethan. Newman. I mean, he was, he and, he and Todd yep. Miller were, were doing the open mic on a Sunday and I walk in and. Yeah. introduced myself just moved to town he goes get up here and do your thing and wow and we just hit it off after that yeah yeah well he was he, but, was, uh, such a, he was such a uh, a facilitator in this scene he was such a sweetheart yes. and and yes. always uh just a huge support i mean i literally you you know there are a number of people who share that same story that Ethan was, was such an early part of their success and their building of confidence yeah. and uh, uh, plugging into the scene. Ethan, Ethan was the guy, man. He was, he was the center of the, he was at the center of the wheel and all the spokes went out from him. Well, you know, someone on another player town said he was a unicorn. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. He was just yeah. one of a kind, but you know, that one in particular, um, I went up to at the time, you remember the old cave Creek coffee, a C4, yeah, C4 the original yeah. C4. Mm-hmm. I went into their open mic and, uh, you know, threw down one night and Dave Anderson comes up and he goes, how'd you like to play here? And I held a Friday night there for seven years. Wow. And, yeah, every Friday night in the wine bar there for like seven years. And yeah. what was great about that gig is that there were all those concerts out in the back camp right. of the national artists. Right. So when their concerts let out, I got all the overflow. You know, I was selling CDs. I mean, it was a great place. It was the right place, right time to kind of, because that little place had just a cult, urban yes. cult status that people would come see from all over the world. Well, great little time and, of year. And we're, t- we're talking about, you know, early 2000s, um, kind of before uh, downtown, you know, downtown Phoenix kind of yeah. started yeah. to have a name. We, like, that was an interesting time. That was right when I moved here, as I said, but, you know, the, the Mill Avenue scene was, was not really there anymore. Yeah. And Phoenix had yet to be developed. And so you had these kind of random uh, music venues that were still hosting national acts, smaller national acts, but mm-hmm. touring acts that there was nowhere for them to play in Tempe, nowhere f- for them to play in mm-hmm. Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And they would skip to Tucson or Flag, mm-hmm. but C4 was one of those places that could capture some of those touring musicians. And I remember yeah, seeing yeah. shows up there thinking, well, I need to be a part of this. You know, mm-hmm. that, that had a great little scene. They supported live music, had a great, that kind of like elbow, um, outside patio. Remember? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the, With the and bleachers the, in each corner in the exactly, end. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> just great setup. Yeah. Dave Anderson, Dave and Anita at the time, man. They're just, uh, yeah. great people and huge proponents. It's Dave still is to this day, huge proponent of the music and, uh, 
and yeah. supporting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. I, I remember one of the first, I, I did the same thing. You know, you get to town, you have to see what's happening. So you start to go to, um, to open mics. And I remember one of the first open mics that I went to uh, was with uh, Walt Richardson at ah, uh, yes. Rula Bula. Did you? Oh gosh, that? I went to that one too. Yes, yes, I did. I remember that one. Yeah, that was you know, and I'm you know whatever. I'm new to town. I'm you know you try to gauge what everyone's doing and what you're doing. And I remember thinking, um, you know, open mics have a place in our lives, right? Sure. You go and you and you uh, gain confidence, and you and you go and you network, and um, and I just I I'm still you know obviously friends with Walt to this day, but, um, it's it just, it's such a time and a place. It's like a bittersweet memory that I have, like of this innocence, you know, bringing my acoustic guitar and playing these early, you know, original tunes. And I'm like, I don't know if it's any good. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's just interesting. It's such a ubiquitous experience for people, the whole process of the open mic. Yep. Absolutely. And it's, and it's kind of evolved in, in, in the sense that, you know, now, um, you know, my life isn't so much about open mics, but now it's about jams. Right. And it's like, that's like a next, the next level. That's like the evolution of the open mic is like, yeah. <laughs> is the jam. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which are super fun, you know? Uh, and I love, I love that feeling of community and, um, camaraderie and, um, you know, meeting new people, playing with new people. Um, anyway, I don't know why I got off on that tangent, but no, I just, those are great. Those I are do, great. I do love, uh, I do love those memories of Rula Bula starting up, you know, starting my band and, and, and uh, Walt, you know, hosting was great. And anyway, let's listen to Bill's tune called Raccoon Creek. has your show um kind of evolved i mean i i know um that you um <laughs> you know you bring a number of instruments and you are um a pro at all of these different instruments when did how did you kind of um develop your current show i would say when I, when I try, I think what people's perception of the solo acoustic performer, when, if you were to ask a handful of people that it's the singer songwriter in front of the mic, the strumming, telling the story type of thing. Um, it wasn't until in my retail days, I remember a Yamaha clinician coming in. His name was Billy Whiteacre. First guy I ever saw that played an acoustic guitar through a distortion pedal and was just doing these weird tunings. And I, I just was drawn to that. So I've always been a proponent of when I see stylistic directions from other artists going this way, I'm like, turn around and go 180. I, I, I don't know. I've always run away I, I, and try to find something different. What do you, I'm uh, sorry, what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack for this, but in this, that's current, right. No one, no one listens to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> if you are familiar with the current, when I, when you see the, 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 the modern acoustic, the new players that are playing the top of the guitar, like a drum in a rhythmic fashion while you're yes. hearing melody and everything. Okay. Yeah. 
I, I, when I, I see too much drumming going on, in my opinion. I think it's time to put the drum sets away and it's time to get back to melody. You know? right, right. So right. case in point, you know, I'm guilty of it, man. I do it all the time. It has its time and <laughs> it has its time and place in, you know, it, 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 in the live setting, it's visually entertaining. I, that's part of the, the, the shtick. I get it. But does it serve the purpose in the composition? Well, it mm. can. Uh, but I, I think it's been it's it's just getting overused. It's been overused. If you're familiar with guys like Michael Hedges, yeah, uh, he's the godfather of this, in my opinion, that started this. Well, there was a guy after him named Preston Reed that took that style in more of a rhythmic drum-like pattern and applied it to the song. But from there, now we've got these guys that have taken it and just I just I think it's perverted too much. <laughs> I'm sorry. I see. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So when I see something like that, I'm like, everybody's doing it, turn around, do something different. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So in regards to my sound and what I do and what you're asking with my bringing my show together, I tried to infuse this electric guitar player with a finger style acoustic player while utilizing a little bit of modern technology with the looping technology that's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been my days with being in music retail and going to the NAMM shows, man, I had my opportunity to get my hands on everything and anything. And I, and so I've been around the looping technology since the nineties and pretty wow. much tried it all. Wow. So pulling that all together into a, making it sound something unique is to put trial and error and accident. You know, I have a pretty elaborate setup in my guitars with multiple pickups that allow me to get drum beats. The drum thing happened by accident. The looper was left on in overdub mode and I went boom on the guitar and the loop came back next time. and went boom. And I went, wait a minute, that's a drum. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, if I do this, boom, bram, bam, boom, bram, bam, and it comes back a looper. Ah, so I'm making this organic drummer with mm -hmm. what I do. Whereas I, I know people that play to a drum pedal or a mm -hmm. drum machine, you know, my, my direction is a little more human, more organic. The fact that it's done in real time means I can make mistakes, which mm -hmm. I will mm -hmm. paint myself into a corner quite a lot. Right. And I have to figure my way out. So right. it's organic. It's real. Um, let's talk a moment about your, about the gear and yeah. like on a normal gig, Walk me through um, your pedal rig. Walk me through the guitars sure. that you bring, um, because I'm not a gear guy. I'm okay. I have I have you know two acoustic guitars, and I have the same RC20 Boss Loop Station that I've had now for sure 15 years. And I I just don't I'm you know when you said you know kind of play the song, serve the song, serve the melody. Um, I've gone through, you know, I went, I had a, at one point I had this huge pedal board and I remember I, I was lugging it to Europe to do a tour and it outweighed my suitcase. And at some point I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, why am I bringing all this shit? Yeah. Just play yeah. the fucking song, you know? Yep. So yep. I love that. That's your touchstone. It's like, if it doesn't serve the song, it's, it's not needed. How about Correct. we just play the tune, you know, play yes. the melody. How about sing the words, you know? Um, but Break it down for a non-gear sure. guy. Well, I, I travel with at least two six strings, uh, and that's more of just having a backup in case a pop a string or something you know goes out on on the electronics. Uh, secondly, because I do alternate tunings, I, uh, 70, 80 percent of my songs are in different alternate tunings, so it facilitates quicker transitions on stage, having multiple instruments ready in those tunings. Sure. Um, harp guitar. Is always there. Uh, you and, know, and, and describe that. Yeah, describe yeah. what a harp guitar is. Oh, a harp guitar. Uh, again, Michael Hedges, the guy saw a picture of him playing one, and I started listening to some of the music, but it's an instrument that was, it's kind of a hybrid instrument that's half a guitar and half a bass. Um, it has a secondary arm on it that supports additional bass strings that are really thick acoustic strings tuned down into the bass register. Those strings are floating and they don't fret. So they provide a sustaining note, very similar to the left hand of a piano. Mm -hmm. So I tell people, you know, the sub basses, those bass strings are the left hand of a piano. You hit one and it goes bong. While then you reach over and play the guitar side and play a melody while that sustaining bass note goes below it. So you can think like a piano player, uh, bass melody type of thing. Hmm. 
that in conjunction with uh you know i have a hawaiian slide guitar old hawaiian slide guitar do a little bit of that stuff and it just depends on what i'm feeling uh, it's a taylor 12 string i've got uh a mandolin so but for oh, the I most see. part two so six strings and a harp guitar i see i see okay so all right and then and then what's what's on the ground what are the pedals yes that you're using? well this is where it gets deep well uh, every <laughs> guitar <laughs> I have a, it's a complicated pickup system. There's a magnetic pickup in the sound hole. Then inside on the bridge plate, there's a transducer. So the transducer behaves like a microphone. The guitar in this, uh, the pickup and the black pickup in the sound hole behaves like an electric guitar pickup. So I'm running a stereo signal out of the guitar, if you will, two signal sources via a Y cable. Mm -hmm. That Y cable splits the two pickups. So I can run the magnetic pickup in the sound hole into electric guitar bass effects. And I can run the transducer under the saddle into acoustic guitar based effects. I can then blend those two pickups together and it gives the illusion of hearing an acoustic and electric guitar at the same time, because I can turn on overdrive on the sound hole pickup and it doesn't affect the transducer pickup. So you hear this scorching overdrive, but yet there's this clean acoustic below it. So I'm creating these layers that just make it sound like an acoustic on steroids. It's just, just sounds bigger than life. And my, I'm by no means trying to go for this natural acoustic mic sound that again, not me, I'm going the other way there. You know, everybody's trying to go for that pristine thing. Cool. Do it. You know, this is something different. And, uh, it just, it, I tell people, it's like if the, the incredible Hulk played an acoustic guitar, this is what it would sound like. It just has this girth to it, man. And, you know, I, I run some subharmonic octave processing on it. So it has like a, an octave note below it. And just, you just hear this, you feel the low end rather than hear it and live. It just, it just, it just moves air. And I just love that power of it. So that pickup system is running basically through reverb, delay, and chorus. I'm more of a, just a reverb, delay, and chorus guy. Keep it easy. And then uh, an overdrive pedal and a compressor to kick on when I want to sound like uh, have that lead guitar overdrive sound. So it is pretty straightforward. Um, it's less is more. I used to have more than that. But like you said, I'm trying to lighten load and, you know, just keep everything in small as rig as possible to make it easier on the back. Yeah, I want to be into the gig in one. I want one trip. I'm not, you know, that's why it's like I, ha I bring one guitar a, you know, a very modest, extremely modest PA, a tiny little pedal board. I'm not trying to like recreate. I'm not, whatever. Here I am with my acoustic guitar, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what I deliver. <laughs> so it, you know, there, it's fascinating a, to hear your process on that. Well, there is a side of it too. I am kind of a gear geek and I do love the the process of the, the, the setup of the equipment and the plugging it in and, and messing with it. And I, you know, yeah. there is a side of me that enjoys that it's therapeutic. You know, I always tell everybody and when, when I'm doing gigs or the band, I say, give me an hour alone. Don't show up. I don't want anybody around me. I got to do it my own way and run all the cables. Then everybody shows up, but it's my therapy. But yeah. Oh, on, on, on another note of the pedal board and the looping you know I, again i've got my hands on pretty much a lot of loopers out there currently i'm using one made by company uh, i'm not endorsed by them in any way but it's called uh, pigtronics and it's called yeah. infinity looper and it gives me the opportunity to do two loops that's about all i use i know guys that have the boss unit that does three loops or six and again you're tap dancing right. you're back to being like a river dancer up there you know right. and, and you know you're not concentrating on the song so i have stripped back to chorus delay reverb and my looper, mm -hmm. you know, and I it's quick and easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I kind of have a love hate relationship with the looping pedal. Yeah. Um, as I said, for me, it always goes back to playing the song. And yep. when it takes two and a half, three minutes to set up this loop to do this tune, I'm like, you just wasted my time, man. Just play the fucking song, you know? Absolutely, man. I think some of us are slaves to the technology. And I know a lot of players that it's an integral part of their sound. But man, yeah, you got to wait for four passes before you go, oh, there's the beginning. Right, you know? right. Hence, I don't use it that way. Yeah. I try to use it more in a percussive manner. 
mm-hmm. to use my organic drum beat and then just play the song over it, man. Right, right. And I am very conscious of not trying to use it all the time, and right. I'm guilty of it sometimes. But every once in a while, I'll go out and do and leave it at home. Just do a gig with just the guitar to make sure I can still play. You know. And no, I get it. And and nothing against the folks that that can do it in a compelling song first way. I just you know, and, 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 you know, uh, full disclosure, I do have a loop pedal and on occasion on a, on a three hour solo hit, I will employ that loop station mm-hmm. and, you know, but it's not going to be that thing where, you know, it takes, th- you know, as you say, four passes to get, okay, this is the beginning. He laid the bass sure. down, he laid the, uh, did some uh, percussion and it's like, no, 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 still, I can't, I can't get behind that as I'm I'm song first. I'm melody first. I'm, you know, so yes, it's it's almost like a necessary evil. Um, yeah. And people who do it well, it's super impressive. I remember the first time, um, uh, some of the first folks that I heard use a loop station uh, were Keller Williams. Which, oh yeah, which Keller's is, monster. And it's you know, and you're you're looking at a stage full of instruments, and he's just bouncing around. Like that's one thing. Um, and then the other cat I remember hearing, uh, was Howie Day, early Howie Day. And the way he used, uh, vocal loops and guitar loops was super compelling. Um, Mm -hmm. and not to say, you know, not to say that it's not possible to use that tool in a really engaging way, but as soon as it takes away from the thing, I just want nothing to do with it. Yeah, I agree. You make a good point. And and again, I do want to interject. I'm not discrediting anybody out there that does looping and uses it effectively because it is just, you know, just as much of an art and just as much of a challenge to do because of the hand to foot coordination. A lot of people take it for granted. It's tough, man. It is tough. You know, and you you made a a comment on Keller. I will make a comment on that. I think being this slave to the technology is indicative of just the current state of the technology of current loopers. Again, I've seen the technology since the 90s, and Keller was using a a looper at the time that's no longer made, and I used to have a couple of them, the old Oberheim Echoplex Digital Pros. Hmm. There were features on that unit that are not being used today in a lot of these production loopers that allowed you to not do this build up four bar type of thing. Hmm. It, it's it, it's oh, interesting. Really? Seriously, seriously. Yeah. There, it was, it was a multiply feature that the old echoplexes used to have that you could play a one bar phrase, copy and paste it 12 times over a, a new performance huh. live in real time. Then you could insert in the middle of a performance. Whoa. It, it, yeah, no, it came with this foot pedal that had eight different s- switches on it that, man, it, it just was killer. Um, and if you're a Mac person, uh, there is a digital version out there called Super Looper, S-O-O-P-E-R-L-O-O-P-E-R, free GUI downloads, free. It's Whoa. eight stereo echoplexes, eight of them. Whoa. And you can download it for free to your laptop. If you have a MIDI pedal, Bluetooth it to your laptop, there's your rig. Oh, my God. Crazy. <laughs> now I've, I've, like I said, I've got my hands on all this looping technology out there. I'm a geek on this stuff. I love it. But uh, yeah, yeah, those that want to really delve into looping, uh, it, it check out Super Looper. But it's only available for Mac. All right. Yeah. Um, tell me about you know we're kind of two years into into a pandemic where um, a lot of our work uh, dried up. Uh, I'm curious how you stayed uh, focused, uh, creative, um, inspired uh, during a time when we weren't able to, to get out there and do those things in, a, in, in an organic way. Yeah. What were, how did you deal with the pandemic? How did you stay creative? Like how, how you know, I, I, you know, I think like everybody, I, I had a period of shutdown. I, I had to, I, yeah. I just shut down for a while. Uh, I think when it first hit, you know, uh, March 15th, right. I remember explicitly cause I was, I was going to play the MIM March 16th, mm-hmm. <laughs> got mm-hmm. canceled the night before, um, yeah. for one of the extreme acoustic shows. But, yeah. uh, I, you know, for me, I think it was, uh, more of just kind of self-reflective, just kind of stay with the family and get a grip on things first. But I'd say around May, phone started ringing. Hmm. Um, 
and I it was more private party stuff. People mm. that wanted to entertain at their house. It was backyard parties. They, they were able to follow the mandates. I was across the pool with a mask on. Right. So I was back to some faculty then. Um, that fall, I was probably by 60, 70%. And it wasn't until probably the following spring that I was kind of back in the saddle. But spring that's on a public. 2020. Oh, no, 2021. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my work goes beyond just public performing. Uh, you know, I'm an educator. I, I teach privately a little bit. Um, and also recording. Uh, I, I did some sync license work, sync license work, uh, licensing work when this was going on. Um, you know, writing and marketing tunes for uh, clients to use for video mm-hmm. type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, more in house uh, video stuff for corporate type clients like that. So, you know, there was, there was a side, side hustle going on with a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, but, um, just doing whatever I could take, you know, but I, I, I taught, I had this conversation with a lot of my fellow players back on the East coast and uh, you, maybe you have too, but I don't think I was, I or us, Arizona working musicians were hit as hard because just to, due to the lifestyle of Arizona, a lot of my work is outdoor patio gigs, man, you know, and, right. and these venues, you know, they, they were able to follow the mandates, follow the distancing. And so, you know, I had some work in some capacity, but mm-hmm. from a creative standpoint, I took that opportunity to start writing more. Um, I've kind of been working on a project with a friend of mine here. That's some very interesting stuff, uh, instrumental bass kind of jam band kind of stuff that uh with no regard for marketability just creating content art art for art's sake well that and you know i i'm i'm but i like the film score thing man the radio television shopping stuff for that you know there are, are countless various degrees of success and avenues in being a musician doing this it's not just the public performing and the sure. you know <clears throat> releasing music there's a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that i am particularly fond of doing you know the recording stuff and uh, licensing tunes and stuff like that. So there was a creative period of uh, creating content, uh, kind of telling myself, "Hey, you've got this book of ideas of little bits of tunes. Why don't you get off your butt and you know finish some of this stuff and get it going?" So mm-hmm. I use it as a time to kind of catch up on stuff I haven't had time to complete. So the story goes is brought to you by Santan Brewing Company. Now we all know Santan has some tasty brews, but did you know they have award-winning spirits as well? Their rye is one of my favorites. Now, in addition to the incredible food that they serve at their pubs, there's two locations. There's one in downtown Chandler, Arizona, but there's also one at Terminal 3 at Sky Harbor Airport. I go there early just to have a moon juice before my flight. Don't tell Delta. Um, But I'm here to tell you about Santan Gardens, which is a new event space that they've opened up. It's at 495 East Warner Road in Chandler, Arizona. Santan Gardens is an indoor-outdoor venue that is created to be an entertainment oasis. Now, You could do a wedding there. You could do a special concert there, a corporate event. But they're also doing their own events. And they want to do some comedy at the end of March. They want to showcase local bands. They want to do a a tribute band thing. Go to SantanBrewing.com and find out more. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait to go. Check them out. What's on the horizon for you creatively? Um, um, performance-wise, but also recording-wise, and and what are you looking forward to um, in 2022? You know, as a working musician, uh, you, you you have several irons in the fire. Continuing with the solo gigs, work is strong. Uh, a lot of clients have booked out for the year uh, with residencies, and that's always good. You know, a little job security with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I've got a trio uh, that's going in a new direction. Uh, I had uh, the Bill Dutcher trio, but I've uh, put that down and kind of got a new trio called Audio Farm with uh, Stephanie Muscat on drums 
Shane Martinez on base with the intent of kind of dipping our toes into totally different type of catalog that takes advantage of uh, Stephanie's singing ability uh, and mm. opening up that singing female drummer. repertoire. Singer, drummer, and sound engineer, and live streaming IT expert. I mean, I hit the trifecta with her, man. She's just, <laughs> she's amazing. She's amazing. So, um, you know, the intent with them is I've been writing original stuff, both instrumental kind of stuff, uh, instrumental rock, but singer songwriter stuff. Again, not trying to hone in on one particular direction with them, yeah. but just creating content. And what I like about this new direction with this trio is I wanted to get away from the, that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers moniker, the Bill Dutcher trio thing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to put that down. I said, I want a collective of three people that, you know, each can bring to the table, you know, and we collectively work as a whole. And it's just been a lot of fun, you know, having a lot of fun making music with them. Uh, yeah. The new pro, what I've got going on with, uh, my buddy I'm writing with, uh, Mark Miracle, mandolin player with uh, the Snoring Dogs. Uh, we've been writing this stuff for the past year and a half, couple years here that uh, we're now we're on a on a mission to record it starting this year here. It's going to be really interesting stuff. It, Mark brings this bluegrass sensibility. I bring, you know, what I bring to the table with my influences. But man, there's stuff that has this jam band, string cheese incident, fish, Grateful Dead vibe to it. But then Django Reinhardt's thrown in there and Mm. Middle Eastern Turkish music and different Mm. time signature. It's the weirdest stuff. But again, not thinking about marketability, but writing original stuff with hitting high profile festivals, kind of like McDowell Mountain Music Festival, Mm -hmm. trying to throw something together for that and come out with some original stuff. So is that, again, is still that in happening in March? I, I, I do not know. I do not know if they're, they're uh, doing it this year, but I just threw that out as, as a uh, type. Those types of level of festivals was what my 10 is. Right. You know, my intent with Mark with this material is like, hey, let's not, you know, let's let's throw together 30 tunes and go play a bar gig. You know, right. Don't want to do that with this. This is all original, all original with the intent of hitting original opportunities and festival level type of stuff. Yeah. So. That's that's the plan with this year to get this going here and, and uh, bring that into the fold. That's awesome. And just and just keep spreading the love of music, man. You know, keep spreading the music, keep spreading the gospel. Yeah. Well, I I I I see you out there. You're busy, man. You you know, you're one of those busy cats. And and uh, hats off that that you were able to, um, you know, not have too much of a hiccup there, and um, stayed busy and stayed creative and. Um, I see you at a lot of the, you know, a lot of the bar gigs around town and, and but yeah, also man. high, pro, high profile. Like I see you with the mem, you know, you're yeah. doing, you're, you're getting out there and, uh, I can't wait to, to get on that stage again. I, you know, did yes. that, did that show in, in 2020, did that ever get rescheduled? It did. It did for the yeah, following, I think in the fall we did that, but that's, that's a series I've done there called extreme acoustic and it's sponsored in part by I am AZ music. And this series focuses on bringing Arizona musicians into the lineup. Uh, in particular, I try to focus on fingerstyle acoustic music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some singer-songwriter stuff in, but it's just really gotten legs, man. I've, I've, I've done it maybe 10, 12 times over the seven years or so. And yeah. uh, the, usually do it twice a year. The format is three players. Each plays a 25-minute set solo. And then we come out and do three, you know, a couple encores together at the end. And it, it's just a niche of music that I feel passionate about. Fingerstyle acoustic guitar music. I, I, you don't really see a lot of it around out here in Phoenix as prolific as I remember seeing back home in the Midwest area there. Because uh, there was a big Chad Atkins kind of society, if you will, in Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, mm-hmm. and Michigan. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of permeated me. So I, I'm kind of trying to carry that torch a little bit out here and spread the love of fingerstyle acoustic music through that series. And it's just been a blessing to play on that stage. It's just phenomenal. Love it. I know. I know that. Yeah. Spiritual, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. That's going to church, homie. Yes, it is, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Bill, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a, a technological first for the podcast. This is our first uh, Zoom interview hang um i would i would cheers you but it doesn't really work over the internet like this but <laughs>
<laughs> I appreciate your time. I, I really enjoyed hearing your story and I, and I look forward to, uh, well, next time you're at the MIM, I'm going to go, but I probably am going to try to hit you up for some tickets. Absolutely, man. You reach out anytime. And uh, I, I truly appreciate you, uh, uh, you know, having me today. This was great to talk uh, music and stuff. And uh, I, yeah, likewise to you, I, I, you're a busy man. You're all over this place here. And uh, we got to make a point sometime maybe to get together and do some picking, man. I'll try to drop in on one of your gigs one time. Check it out. Oh, God. I'm already dreading that because I've, I already know what you bring to the table and I'm, I'm inadequate. Oh, no, no, dude. It's all about just, <laughs> you know, having a great time and just uh, getting that uh, melodic conversation going on mentally, man. I'm all for that. All it's right. All good. Well, I'll hold you to it. Peace to you, my friend, and uh, you take care, okay? Thank you, Bill. Same to you, brother. I'll talk to you soon. So the story goes.